Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome to the grand final of our All Sport 70 podcast series. Um, to celebrate 70 years of All Sport, we've been picking out the greatest cars from motorsport history. Uh, and we've reached the grand final. We've got the winners from all the various categories. And now we're going to go through those and throw in a few uh, through wild card, a few wild cards as well. And joining me in this Herculean task. First of all, uh, is our technical editor, Jake Boxall-Legg. Now, Jake, you've, you've joined us on a couple of these. I know that you've obviously been following the F1 developments. It's been quite nice to go back a bit further and dip into the history of the sport a bit more. Well, as I'm sure you've seen from the various features I've written over the years, where I've just delved back into some kind of random period of time and have written something about an old car. I always like dipping back into history. It's just so many stories there, and it's nice to be able to talk about them on, on this podcast series. Absolutely, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, and the second, my second guest is uh, someone else who's been on a couple of these so far, uh, and that is Marcus Simmons, deputy editor of, of All Sport magazine. Uh, so, Marcus, are you are looking forward to this one? You've had two quite different ones you've, you've been on so far, the touring car one and the junior single-seaters, and now we're doing things either side of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I've, I've gone from um, stuff for, uh, for people barely out of school to, uh, to a form of racing that was uh, for a long time um, described as old man's racing. But uh, it isn't really anymore, is it? So, uh, yeah, um, they, yeah, the, the uh, old cliche, never the twain shall meet is never less relevant than it is today. And, uh, and uh, you know, a, a career can take you anywhere. So, yeah, interested to see how all these, um, we're going to bring all these completely different disciplines together. Yeah, it'd be interesting, actually, when, maybe on, on another podcast, see if there's any one driver that's driven all of the cars that we've got in the uh, 
uh, in the finals. It could be interesting. But um, and Probably my we had on one of our podcasts. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, uh, the touring car one. Uh, and uh, my final guest is he's he's special in this context because he has not appeared on any of these so far. So he could be absolutely raging at uh, some of the things that uh, ha- have have been said and not included. It's our former reader correspondent, editorial assistant, Matt Hugh. Welcome, Matt. You're looking forward to getting involved in the debate in the, the most important one. Absolutely. Um, I like to think we're doing this, deciding the best cars, and you've brought on the best journalist for the best car finale. I hope that's I hope that's a plan you had uh, all along. Unfortunately, I wasn't available to uh, discuss touring cars and make the case for the uh, Vox Lastra Coupe, but hopefully I can sort of steer us all in the right direction for the one that counts. Yeah, don't worry, folks. He, his, his, his knowledge and interest in the rest of the sport is much more accurate and helpful than his love for the Vox, the Vox Lastra. So we'll, we'll move swiftly beyond <laughs> that. So I'm just going to quickly go through the finalists from the rounds uh, that we've had so far, and then we'll talk about the sort of wild cards and honourable mentions that perhaps didn't slot into those before we'll come back to the sort of the final six. So the winners, the winner uh, of the uh, of the Greatest Grand Prix car was the Lotus 72. The Greatest Sports car was the Porsche 956 962. The greatest rally car was the Audi Quattro. The greatest touring car was the BMW E30 M3. The greatest Indy car was the McLaren M16. That was quite a tough debate, that was. And then the greatest junior single-seater winner was the Rolt RT3. And I'm gonna the first wild card I'm gonna throw in, which we can we can discuss at length. We could do an entire podcast just on this car, is the Porsche 911, on the basis that if you're talking about iconic automotive designs. Uh, then it's up there with the you know with with the Mini and the BMW M3. So so Matt, I'll bring you in you in first as you've not not been able to partake in some of the other ones. Where where do you think the Porsche 911 sits in this debate? Well, first off, I'm going to ask you to clarify because I think when we're discussing sort of uh, 917s versus Mercedes W11s as the greatest car, that you know you have one year of that Mercedes Grand Prix car. Well, there's a 917, you have K, you have, you know, uh, long tail versions, then you have slash 10, slash 30s in, in Can-Am. So to include 911, which is celebrated, what, its 60th anniversary, and, you know, you can go from narrow body to Brumos wide bodies to current IMSA races. I want you to be a bit more specific, Kev, if that's all right. And then uh, and then I can come in, because you've even got, uh, I'm already first tangent, already got, you know, 911s masquerading as touring cars, which it definitely isn't in the, in the British Saloon Car Championship way back then. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, wide bodied race ones in the Dakar. So, yeah, I think we uh, need to be a bit more uh, a bit more specific there. Well, that's the very reason I wanted to, to raise this because uh, the 911 did win in, well, Rallycross. It won the inaugural Rallycross event, but it won in rallying, sports cars, GTs, did run as a touring car. Uh, in fact, at one stage, I think it was running in three different categories, but was basically the same car. Um, but I think the point that Matt's made there is it, it can we really say that all the different cars that have been called 911 uh, or have been related to the 911, the most extreme of which is probably, I guess, the 935, or you could even get into the 911 GT1s. Are we really just talking about a sort of a, a name or a brand that they're putting on rather than one design? What do you think, Marcus? Are we stretching a bit to include the 911 as a whole? Yeah, I think they're cheating a bit, aren't they? Um, yeah, it, it is yeah, obviously marketing reasons why. All these different cars since the 1960s have been called 911s. Although it is interesting in its own right that uh, a, a basic shape of Porsche is still competing today at the forefront of international GT racing. 
uh, which isn't that different to what it was back in the 60s. You know, if you just look at the silhouette outline of it, um, you can see the resemblance. But yeah, it's a bit like Chevy with Corvettes and Ford with Mustangs, isn't it? Um, we're not going to say that uh, a, uh, a Corvette that raced in Trans Am in the late 1960s has got anything to do with the, uh, you know, the, the yellow beasts that have been uh, at the forefront of GTLM over the or GTE in Europe over the last few years. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a good idea to chuck it out there as a wild card, but I'm not convinced that it really fits. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. And, and Jake, they've managed to overcome... One of the things that is impressive about the 911, they've been over, able to overcome basic physics, which is they have a fantastic handling car, despite the engine being not really in the ideal place, really. No, it's sort of like in that overhang, isn't it? And it's... It is amazing, even though we we are now into the existential crisis of when is a 911 not a 911 or are, and are all 911s 911s. Um, the end of the day is... It, it's a 991. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's it's a design classic. Um, and although, you know, it might not go any further into this, uh, our own little competition because of all of these variables... It is a design uh, it is a design classic, and um, it should be heralded for that very reason. Yeah, I'd agree, I'd agree with all that. And uh, I mean, just to go back to what Marcus was saying, you know, you've gone air cooled, water cooled. They've moved the they've moved the engine around so that the latest car is kind of more mid engined. Well, what about um, the 911 GT1? That's a 911. Uh, that engine it, was definitely in the middle. Exactly. And what did yeah. that have in similarity with even the road going 911 at the time? Never mind the, there was a the Friday car that 63. There was a Friday headlamps, but that, that was about it, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think I, I'm also, I, I'm struggling to answer Matt's original questions. Well, which one are we talking about? And I think that's kind of the point, really. At least with the BMW M3, we're very we're very quickly able to home in on the, on, on the first one, on the E30. So... I totally agree. Nine eleven, absolutely classic, brilliant design, but it's uh, that had to have it mentioned. But that's why it hasn't made it into any of our debates thus far, and also won't go any further. So, two other cars I'm going to mention now. I do have a bit of a reputation for talking about old stuff, but I reckon this is pushing the limits even for me. So, I'm just going to cover these off quickly. Um, we did talk about the Peugeot L76 and the 1914 Grand Prix Mercedes in the Grand Prix uh, podcast. The reason I wanted to mention them again. Uh, well, partly because I think they deserve to be, but also because they went on to win, both of them went on to win in the States as well, the Indy 500. So the Peugeot is a groundbreaker in that it brought a whole load of latest ideas together, uh, four valves per cylinder, dual overhead camera shaft, hemispherical combustion chamber, basically to prove that you didn't need a 16-litre Fiat to win Grand Prix races was essentially what that was about. Uh, and they then went out and won three Indy 500s uh, just before and immediately after, well, one during the First World War. And the 1914 Mercedes, which I don't think was as revolutionary, but was uh, run in the way that you would expect from a German team, uh, rocked up very efficient, one, two, three, in the 1914 French Grand Prix. Uh, and then uh, Ralph De Palma managed to, well, not smuggle, he got one from Mercedes, out of the factory as the First World War was starting and then managed to use it to win the 1915 Indy 500. So two remarkable cars that I think did a lot for both the sport, automotive industry in general, uh, and in the 1940 Mercedes case, the, it's almost the start point of their reputation in Grand Prix racing. So I wanted to give those a mention, unless you chaps wanted to uh, 
suggest that one of those two should go any further, I will move on to the next car, which I will throw to Jake. Any Anyone want to talk about those pre-First World War cars? Surprising silence <laughs> there. Uh, I think also, to be honest, one of the factors that we, that we looked at for this was uh, fever factor, uh, and I'm sure they were very fever at the time. But I think with, you know, with a hundred over a hundred years of motorsport experience since then, they're not going to not probably going to get you going in the same way that some of these other cars will. Um, but the next car, I don't think the excitement rating is the problem here. <laughs> but uh, we haven't done a NASCAR round, but I couldn't not mention the Plymouth Superbird and the Dodge Charger Daytona, which were effectively the same car. So, Jake, you like big American <laughs> over-the-top things. What, what, why are we talking about those two? Well, it's sort of like an interesting story behind the whole Dodge Charger Daytona because the original Dodge Charger 500 wasn't particularly brilliant and it was what eventually caused Richard Petty to leave the, leave the Plymouth team and go to Ford. And so Dodge sort of looked at him like, oh, our, our car's kind of rubbish. We need to create something and this is like when nascar really first started to develop its aerodynamics a little bit further i know we never think of nascar as an aero formula but i think this is probably with the one time it tried to be um so after rich petty left uh, at the end of 1968 they built the charge daytona for 1969 they became known as the winged wonders because it had that colossal rear wing on stilts at the back of the car um it sort of had a it had a nose cone as well um and it, it was the first ever nascar cup car to get to 200 miles an hour in a race that was uh buddy baker um and then the superbird moving on that was an evolution of that that's what plymouth and dodge used to get richard petty back and i think it is the car that he is most associated with nascar that sort of baby blue massive rear wing superbird um i think i remember first seeing it when i was playing gran turismo 2 as a kid and i was like what on earth is this and it came in all these bright colors and it was difficult to drive and i was like but for some reason it was just it stood out to me um obviously back you know it's still something nascar has to do the whole homologation thing that's why you've got the cars that look like toyota camrys or uh chevy camaros or whatever you know um they had to go and actually build the superbird for uh for a road car run um petty went back he saw the car and he was like okay well i'll come back to plymouth um and he won 18 races in it during the 1970 season um the only reason that he didn't have a shot at winning the title was because he had a massive crash at darlington um and the car flipped several times and his head was scratching along the tarmac. And it is amazing that the only injury that he had was to his shoulder. Um, which, so funnily enough, on a side note, it's the reason why NASCAR cars have like the little side netting thing as a result of that crash to stop the driver's head poking out. Um, but it was, it was a really short lived car as well, which is a shame um, because 1971, when they saw the aero formula that this car was developed to, they go, okay, you can either bring the engine capacity down or you can increase the weight to sort of peg it back a little bit. And the Superbird wasn't going to be very competitive. So they had to switch back to, well, they had to switch to a Dodge Roadrunner, um, which ended up being more successful. And Richard Petty won the 1971 uh, cup title, um, which was his third title. But 
I think when you look at that Superbird, it's just it's so iconic. Um, and I know it's probably not going to draw the the favor of everyone else in this podcast, but it, it's a nice one to talk about, certainly. Yeah, I, I think it's it was it immediately came to my mind when I was thinking NASCAR is such a is such a sort of legendary shape, and also um, as Matt will know, I've got a bit of a soft spot for any car that basically has to be legislated out of uh, out of winning things rather than just being defeated by uh, developments from the opposition. I think probably it falls down on on two, maybe even three elements. One is did it change the game? I suppose you could argue that it did perhaps increase focus on the aero thing, so that that's quite good. But longevity isn't really isn't really there is it uh, and i think we're also into it's a bit it's sort of esoteric isn't it it's narrow it's not a global car it's the same argument we had with the honda civic uh type r in the british touring car one it is very much a you know a, a sort of one trick pony from that point of view but i did want to want to mention it and i didn't want nascar fans to be upset that we didn't mention it at all because obviously there have been some cool nascars over the years um and an- another cool car which i'm going to throw at that marcus um, the Lola T332, which is uh, another V8-engined uh, machine, but a very different one. Probably the greatest Formula 5000 machine uh, of that of that time, of that category. Yeah, I'd, I'd say without question the, the T332 and the T330 from, from which it came uh, were, yeah, without question, the, the greatest Formula 5000 cars. Um, yeah, not just, not just looking at it from... Um, uk slash european perspective but also in the very very competitive and and rich american series at the time which really um so that series in the states um was really what became indycar a few years later when cart was formed and and it <clears throat> the um races moved away from the ovals and onto the road and street courses it was um, you, the, the lineage was directly from that American Formula 5000 scene um, via via the uh, the Can-Am interruption in between. So um, yeah, it was, um, and also uh, you know, Australia and New Zealand, where the formula was really strong as well. Um, a load of top drivers um, competed in it: you know, Brian Redman, David Hobbs, um, Tony Bryce. Uh, starred in one at uh, Long Beach in the pilot race there they had in 75. Um, great car, good handling, um, well, as, as well handling as a Formula 5000 car could be. Uh, in the States, yeah, Mario Andretti and Alonso Race and Jody Schechter. Um, I, actually, I might be wrong with Jody Schechter. I think he may have been a bit before the T330. Uh, so I missed that bit out. <laughs> uh, so... Um, yeah, that was um, that was a really really strong car. Um, hasn't really fitted into any of our categories because I uh, I don't think uh, you can count Formula Five Thousand as junior single seaters, uh, and it's obviously not Formula One. Uh, although, funnily enough, the first Formula One race I ever went to as a kid was the seventy four International Trophy, uh, which was Formula One and Formula Five Thousand, and there were a load of T three thirty stroke three three twos on the grid. <laughs> so um but anyway, that's rambling a little bit. I just want to hop back to something you mentioned about the Peugeot and Mercedes from nineteen fourteen, actually, because I don't know anything about the cars. But um you then mentioned at the end the fever or excitement uh quota of them. And uh from accounts I've read of that race, it's one of the most thrilling motor races that was ever staged. Uh, yeah, Europe. The 1914 French Grand Prix. 
all the things French yeah, Grand absolutely. Europe was on the brink of war. Um, Georges Boilet was the absolute ace driver at the time and was he was kind of the Gilles Villeneuve of the Peugeot team, wasn't he? Um, doing an absolutely mighty job until disaster struck close to the finish and the, the Mercedes rumbled to victory with Christian Lautenschlager, who's Who's a, whose grandson has been racing in uh, TCR Germany in the past few seasons, incidentally. So, uh, so anyway, there you go. You never know what these discussions are going to lead on to, do you? <laughs> Fantastic link there. Yeah, no, my, my point really about those was was the kind of the test of would you watch one going around on its own? Uh, and I guess back in the day you would have done, whether, whether you get the same feeling now. Yeah, if you were standing by the uh, a corner of a narrow dirt road with George Puello coming into view, I think you'd, you'd probably stay there, uh, stay there and watch him um, doing that and be absolutely blown away, wouldn't you? You probably would. You probably would. And I think similarly, uh, a well-driven Formula Five Thousand car would be uh, would be something to watch as well. And Mario Andretti, of course, did reckon that with tire development, had they been allowed to pursue that to the same degree, say in Europe, they weren't weren't able to. They could have matched some Formula One times. They didn't normally. They were usually a little bit off. Uh, Peter Gethin obviously famously won the race of champions at Brands Hatch in 1973, but that was when all the F1 cars broke down, basically. So um, what what do you think, Matt? I, I, my, my feeling is that perhaps the F5000 thing isn't quite, it's not quite pinnacle enough, not quite broad enough, world championship status enough to make it through to the, to the sort of later stages of this. Do you think that's fair? Well, I'm going to bring up a... a... Uh, sort of uh, a debate that won't won't carry much favour with you, but you're saying sort of it's cool how you know certain cars lead to the outlawing of certain regulations, and obviously 91730 is almost what put pay to the Canam. But it's worth to mention that the Lola T330 design was you know in essence what Canam's revival was built around this sort of low budget uh, silhouette racer, and so you know for it to for under for it to underpin sort of a whole series shows its uh, enduring design allowed Brian Redmond sort of pick up his design that, that's one thing i will say i know we've sort of had mentions of mario andretti but when you think of some of the cars on this list there's three or four five or six different drivers that come to your mind immediately but the lola 330 i think it's sort of essentially brian redmond on wheels i think three us formula 5000 titles would have been a fourth if he hadn't have been sort of cup tied with ferrari in europe uh but yeah i think i think this is a point i'll probably bring up later on when we talk about one of our contenders when we're discussing outright success and, and this sort of fever rating, I think really we have to be looking at top flight machinery. And I think Formula 5000 is probably just a bit too much of a tangent to that, as exciting and as much of a privilege it is to watch one of those cars go around the track by itself. I think that's a very good summary of that situation. And yes, that's a very good point that it sort of uh, uh, helps the revival of, of, of the sort of second generation of, of Can-Am. And of course, it was quite a, uh, a game changer in its own right as well, because it was uh, we talked to Simon Hadfield about this uh, when we did the Lola piece a couple of years ago, and he was saying how it was really pushing the limits in terms of how big the car was, wide and long, and you know, extending the wheelbase and the aero. So, very important car, one of Lola's greatest uh, designs. But I think Matt sort of hit the nail on the head there, really, so why it probably won't go through uh, any further. Um, but I'm going to bring Matt in again for a <laughs> look into the future almost now, really, is that um, we didn't have a debate about um, electric cars or alternative uh, technologies. Uh, in the previous rounds, but is there a, a recent car um, from that, say, Formula E uh, that you've covered that, that we should be throwing into this as well as a kind of a, a, a perhaps the biggest game changer of all if we're doing this in 10 or 20 years' time? Yeah, well, I know we had a couple of quick emails back and forth, and one car that came up was the Volkswagen IDR, but I've uh, I've sort of sat back and thought about that, and that was really 
an aerofoil that just so happened to be powered by electricity. You know, uh, <laughs> it, it was is still, to my mind, it's still Volkswagen bouncing back from Dieselgate with sort of a, a marketing ploy. And, uh, you know, it had to be towed to the starting line to, to have enough range to do a lap as impressive as its sort of Pikes Peak feet was. So, and the other one I wanted to consider was sort of the current DS to Cheetah Gen 2 form recar for, you know, that's uh, one back-to-back team titles, back-to-back driver titles for Jean Eric Verdin, Antonio Felix da Costa. But I think it has to be the Gen 1 former recar, not least because in that first season, it won 100% of all the races it entered, which yeah. is quite a stat. But obviously, you know, the championship now is, uh, we've just finished its sixth season. It's in rude health. Um, there's still, you know, as many sceptics as there are fans, possibly more so. It's not great that the cars can't do a whole race, but from where they were pre-season, you know, breaking down in these test races to... So putting Formula E on the map uh, and and they were like the dependable thing in amongst all the drivers coming in and out of the series in amongst uh, getting to Miami and there not being enough money for for the race to start. The the, the Spark uh, first gen Formula E car was, was dependable and, and, and got us to where we are now. It's it's an exciting sport and in, in pretty rude health. And uh, although it probably, you know, criticisms are that it looked a bit too much like a generic single seater, it wasn't that fast. It was heavy. Um you know, it's a foundation for something that's potentially potentially pretty great. So uh, I think, yeah, it has to be the first gen one. And then I suppose if you wanted to be a bit more specific, I would say maybe the season season two and three Renault Edam's uh, powertrain is the best one. Because obviously what Buemi did in a, uh, in a driver's championship and then the, it was good enough for Jesse Cheetah to win with the customer powertrain. Yeah, no, I think that's... Can I be okay. a bit... Go, go on, Marcus. Well, on the grounds that some of our uh, junior single-seater contenders, we sort of went a bit mm, on them because they were spec cars. Um, I think uh, on the same grounds that first-generation Formula E car would uh, not make the cut as far as I'm concerned. And um, going on to the Volkswagen IDR, I'd, um, I'd like to see it compete in a competition where it's not almost guaranteed to win before we can um, put that up for discussion. Yeah, it's certainly a fantastic record break of the IDR. I mean, obviously, it's got the Goodwood record now. It's uh, It trashed the electric Pikes Peak record by a minute, but it's not a race car. Um, and I feel like that's what kind of the criteria we're going on here. Well, we have a competition car. We've included the rally side of things as well. But yeah, I think I think the one make point that, that uh, Marcus makes is, is, is a good one. Uh, I think it is, it is potentially going to be a groundbreaking groundbreaking car we might look back on it a bit more fondly in years to come but uh yeah and also it's not quite it's not quite fever enough and it doesn't really tick your your uh box mat of it being quite at the pinnacle you know it's almost a it's an electric version of f5000 in that sense lots of drivers who would nearly f1 that's going to upset everyone that'll upset literally everyone to liken those two together but it's uh it's kind of like a subcategory so i think the gen one is probably the one to pick out from the electric cars we've had so far although i agree with jake the rdr's cooler we will get um, rose tinted spectacles one day because all the cars are sat lying around so there's inevitably going to be a historic formula e championship set up somewhere soon well should we put marcus pie on to covering that and see what he makes of that would be a, some pretty fascinating columns and reports from that i'm sure it won't right. be rorty it won't be rorty no <laughs> I'm sure Simon Hadfield's got a couple in the workshop already being prepped. <laughs> well, the good thing about Simon is that he doesn't switch off a particular year. He stays interested in everything. So, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure he's got a little eye on a you know a hybrid LMP1 car or a Formula E car somewhere. So, 
But um, yeah, so right. Anyway, so I think we've we've gone through some honourable mentions, cars that didn't really slot in to the debates that we did before. But I think we've come back to the that original six that we talked about, and I think probably we could start off by we'll start off by knocking some of these off the list. I don't think we need to go into too much detail about the success of some of these cars at this point because we've done that, and they are obviously by definition some of the most successful racing cars that we've ever seen. So I'm going to kick this off and see if anyone argues with me in that I believe that if we're talking about the greatest competition car of all time, it should be one that is a destination championship, a pinnacle of whether it's touring cars, sports cars, single-seaters, and therefore automatically that would discount a junior single-seater. So my bid would be to knock out the Ralt RT3 as the first one to be to be lost from the six. I'm looking mainly at Marcus Simmons to see if he agrees because uh, he's a big junior single-seater man and... The Raw obviously was a special car. It was, yeah. Um, and um, and I can't believe you're not saying that the various national Formula 3 championships were the destination championship. For, well, <laughs> well, actually, they were for most of the people who did them. Which <laughs> wasn't really the point. <laughs> obviously, um, most of the people who drove the Rolls RT3 were not dreaming of driving a Rolls RT3. Uh, they were dreaming of getting into a Renault Formula One car or a Brabham BMW or or a, you know McLaren. Um, so I can see your point. Um, it was a phenomenally successful car, and actually I've just been nerding out massively with some stats today on the RT3 with uh, you know, some of the drivers who won most races, and you know, you've got names like um, Ayrton and Martin Brundle. Everybody knows about, but, but um, you know other you know people you might not necessarily spring might not necessarily spring to mind straight uh, straight away um stefan belloff um john nielsen ivan capelli even uh in his year in the italian championship before he went to the european with a martini gerhard berger um uh, roberto rivalia won uh, a race in an rt3 before um going the tin top route so uh, a lot of great drivers raced it and it completely changed the face of formula three um, but as you say, yeah, the drivers in it weren't uh, thinking, right, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to, <laughs> they wanted to uh, to move on to other things. So uh, so on your, uh, you know, on those rationales, I would say, uh, yeah, you're possibly onto something there. <laughs> it was a great car. <laughs> I think that's, that's fair enough. It's probably as good as a, yes, it can go. As I'm ever going to get out of Marcus, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to press on while we're ahead. And I'm going to get Jake to nail us down to one single-seater because there's quite a lot of similarity uh, and sort of parallel stories for the Lotus 72, which won our Grand Prix contest, and the McLaren M16 that won the IndyCar one. So would you like to talk us those through those two and and, and, and delude, lose one of them? Cool, sure. Um, so obviously, I think we put the Lotus 72 through because it very much has sort of become... It changed how Formula One cars look and it's brought us down the path of what they look like today. Um, Formula One moved away from those cigar shaped cars to, you know, what the Lotus 72 represented with the side pods at the side, what the radiators at the side, um, you know, enhancing the wings for downforce and all that kind of thing. Um, the M16, it's not a groundbreaker as the Lotus 72 was it's they're, they're similar cars uh if you look at them visually um 
what the M16 did was it brought that sort of ethos to well helped bring that ethos to IndyCar um partially that I think the Lotus 76 probably you'd argue perhaps did the same as well but the M16 I feel is quite strongly rooted in that 72 and if you're going to pick one of them then you've got to pick the sort of the father of all of those um obviously the M16 was a great car um and that sort of developed into the well with uh, Gordon Coppock designing both of them, uh, the M23, which took James Hunt to a world title, um, well, took Fittipaldi to a title, took James Hunt to a title. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, if we're picking one single seater, what's the most iconic for everyone worldwide? Lotus 72, no question. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna agree with that completely. I think uh, also, if you're looking at the sort of strike rate of success, you know, the Lotus 72 won two drivers' championships, uh, one with Jochen Rindt and then uh, Emerson Fittipaldi, and three constructors' championships. It might have had a hat-trick of each, except that it had the misfortune of coming up against uh, Jackie Stewart. Uh, I imagine Jackie Stewart in a Lotus 72. That would have been uh, that would have been something. But um, yeah, so uh, whereas the McLaren M16, it did win three Indy 500s. But it actually kept missing out on the championship. Um, they had quite a big fight going on with Eagle during that sort of early and mid-70s. Uh, and McLaren and Eagle sort of took it in terms of winning the Indy 500. But um, uh, McLaren didn't actually win the championship very often. Roger McCluskey won it in 1973. And that's basically it. So... Um, the the McLaren and the Eagles we talked about in the IndyCar podcast did definitely sort of change the way IndyCars looked and the way that that was going. But I think yeah, the the genesis of that really can be found as as, as Jake says with the Lotus seventy two. So the McLaren M sixteen is out. The Lotus seventy two stays in. And I'm now going to throw to Matt, who I think has already hinted at um, one of the criteria he could use to remove another car from our list. So what um, what do you reckon, Matt? What should we lose next? Well, I don't want to go for a double hit, but I was one. I've kept coming back to the argument of fever, and I can't decide whether I think more. What's more cool is it a thoroughbred racing car, or is it something that has led to some really cool homologation specials? And that brings us, I think, maybe to the two I would look to. I would look to discuss next, which is either the BMW. Uh, E30 M3 or the Audi Quattro. Kev, I can see you uh, wanting to wanting to steer this a bit more. Do you want to dive in before I before I pick either or off? No, no. I think that uh, I think that's a that is the kind of the crux of the question I was leaning towards. Is that my gut feeling is that the greatest competition car uh, that we pick should be should have been designed as a competition car and not yeah. be a compromised road car, however special. And of course, with homologation specials, how much is it race car? How much is it road car? It's initial design. But I think uh, I think you've got to have, I think the winner of this should be a bespoke racing car or competition car. Uh, and I think that I, as you know, Matt, I'm a huge BMW fan, but I think for me, that's probably where the E30 M3, which I'd really like, very much like a road car of, uh, whereas I couldn't have that option with some of the other cars on this list, is probably the way to, it's probably probably has to go at this point are there any objections to losing the losing the 30 m3 certainly not for me but one thing i will add is that that didn't get a mention obviously it was a british touring car podcast but um e30 m3 obviously anyone anyone who takes keen interest in that should definitely go to youtube and hunt out patrick snires and the 1988 manx sliding one of those as well around because obviously great you know great car you know uh DTM with Van der Poel and Vavaglia and, uh, you know, world touring cars. N24, did it win four? 
five, six, four, then twenty-four, four, four, four twenty-fours, four Spa twenty-fours, and a, and basically a championship in pretty much every continent that had one. Yeah, uh, quite. But yeah, anyway, basically go pick it out, see it on tarmac. You know that Bastos motor livery is, is a hell of a spectacle. But I think possibly possibly that's that's the next one to go on our list and i would have picked the rs 500 as the touring car winner but anyway well it's interesting you say that matt uh, because i can remember it being said in the podcast i think that's probably because i said it but for for me um the sierra rs 500 cosworth was the greatest car in british touring car championship history but if you uh, opened it up to include worldwide touring car racing it would have to be the E30 M3, just because it was so successful in so many different championships across the world, uh, to a level that the, the, the RS500 didn't quite achieve. So, uh, so yeah. But um, but going back to your your original argument, Kev, um, I would probably say I'd, I'd far prefer to see a. I, I I know I'm more likely to choose a Formula One or Group C car or something than I am a a, a um, production based tin top. Um, so um, I would agree with removing that and probably the Audi Quattro. Yes, on that basis, we'd uh, we would have to have to lose the Quattro as well. Although I should think if you could, if we're talking about clips to pick out, I think there's a clip of Stig Blomqvist in the uh, bewinged, sm- smoking, fire-breathing uh, ultimate evolution of a Quattro, which frankly is definitely not a road car. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think at the Thousand Lakes, which is an incredible piece of footage, but does show just how impossible that thing was to keep going in a straight line. He breaks even for humps when going in a straight line. I think by then the the power of Group B had very much overtaken the chassis development and tyre development that uh, Audi could muster at the time. Um, so fantastic car, but I think it does fall um, uh, fall on the same basis, really, which leaves us... I think this is probably not a huge shock to, um, <laughs> But it leaves us with a straight fight between the Lotus 72 and the Porsche 956 962. We've kind of lumped those into together. Um, so uh, just to go over the 962 stats to put it up against the Lotus 72, which, as I say, won those five championships in Formula 1, 20 Grand Prix wins uh, and some non-championship race wins as well. Um, but the, 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 the Porsche won six Le Mans 24 hours, not including the 1994 race. Uh, as a Dow 962, which was a bit of a swizz on the rules because it was a, entered as a GT car, which, I mean, Porsche have done some pretty amazing things with loopholes in the past, but I thought that one was really taking the biscuit. Uh, and also won the Drivers and Constructors Championships, or Teams Championships, it became uh, between 82 and 86 under Group C. So I'd, I'd rather it not become a straight fight between do you prefer Formula 1 or do you prefer sports cars? So, so Jake, can you think of perhaps a, a, another way of looking at it, a technical way of looking at, at it to, to try and separate these two? Uh, <laughs> you put me right on the spot there. Um, I don't really know, to be honest. I think you would have to probably look at them in terms of advancement and what they did for their respective categories, I think, um, which I, I, you know, it might be a difficult thing to do. Um, obviously, I'm going to be probably flying the flag for the Lotus 72 a little bit, but obviously, I think the the mark it has left an indelible mark on Formula One. But I, I suppose the Porsche has done the same. So um, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to kick this around a little bit and work out where well, we I'll go. Th- I'll throw to Marcus on this. I've got a few thoughts. I'll throw to Marcus first because in terms of wins, if you're looking at international wins and longevity, 
the 962 in various forms was around for 16 years. Um, at one stage, sports car racing essentially existed because of it. So does that work in its favour or does that work against it? Because at various points, it really only had to beat itself. So I'm not quite sure whether that's a strength or a weakness. I'm, I'm not too sure that it's a weakness of it. Um, what I would say is that um, in the years up to 1982, when the 956 came out and it was the first year of the Group C regulations, sports car racing at an international level was absolutely rubbish. And um, you would, if the top 10 on the grid were covered by less than 10 seconds, you'd say that was a closely matched field. Um, and sometimes you didn't even have 10 cars on the grid. So um, the fact that the <clears throat> 956 came along and then Porsche made it available to customers and the 962 after that just really democratized that form of motorsport. Um, and and it, because of that, um, Group C enjoyed absolutely, you know, absolutely massive grids. Um, and also because of the money that was coming into it, um, we were seeing a lot of the you know, really exciting Formula One drivers of the time um, competing in them. Now, one thing it did do, but because of its numerical superiority, you kind of wanted the Lancia to win <laughs> because, because uh, the LC2 especially looked really cool in the Martini stripes. It had people like Patrese and Nanini driving it who were you know, very popular at the time. Um, and um, and also, um, yeah, the Lancia was usually hit by unreliability and uh, but it was fast before it broke. So that was your kind of underdog car that you supported in the, in, in those days. Um, but um, but the Porsche, I think, completely, the, sorry, the 956 and 962, um, I think totally changed the landscape of sports car racing. And, and as far as I was concerned, they made it something I wanted to watch and something I was interested in, uh, which uh, hadn't necessarily been the case before. Um, so, so in that case, I think it's an an extremely important car and and you know, uh, you know going to the brands hatch thousand kilometers in the in the 80s it was well attended there were good crowds uh, people were excited by it and it was good racing that's a, that's a pretty strong that is a pretty strong case uh, for the porsche what, what what do you think that i mean obviously if we're talking about fever racing both of these cars you know in the hands of in the hands of a top driver would be fantastic to watch you know with the 962 the boost turned up you know, Hans Stuck at Le Mans or Ronnie Peterson in the late 72 at Silverstone. You know, these are all kind of some of the iconic motorsport images. Uh, if you're talking liveries, both cars, I mean, the late 72 had two of the greatest F1 liveries, JPS, Gold Leaf, um, and the 962, 956 had all sorts of different liveries. I mean, you could have a podcast just debating which livery you liked best on the on the Group C Porsche. So they were, and, and I think the 72 has longevity in an F1 context, which is also remarkable in a way that the, the Porsche has. Um, didn't democratise Formula One, but I think that that's not something you could really hold against something that's at the pinnacle of the sport. So, so Matt, do you have a what's your feeling on this? Do you have a preference of these two? Uh, I, I do, and I'll, I'll go straight out and say it's it's. I prefer my uh, cars to have coverings over the wheel side, go towards the Porsche uh, 956 and 962. Um, I don't want to rain on our technical editors' parade, but I I want to bring in some of sort of. The, the the engineering development and I think it's worth reading out a correspondence we got about one of the podcasts from a chap called Ian Porter who wrote in and said hello team I enjoyed your first podcast in the series on the best ever racing cars which elevated the Lotus 72 to the rank of best F1 car 
While you mounted very good arguments as to why it deserves that rank, I found it interesting that you never mentioned the fact it had torsion bar suspension. Given that one of your guiding criteria for the discussion was that the nominee should set a trend for the rest, did you avoid mentioning torsion bars because there were so many other aspects that were taken up by others? But just how many other uh, manufacturers did take up torsion bars? Let me start the list. Uh, it's not a disqualifying factor. I thought such a relatively unsuccessful element of the Lotus 72 should have been noted. So, you know, appreciate Ian for writing it in. And I, I'm going to back his corner as well. So you have you have the wedge shape, the side pod uh, radiators as these great innovations that really set the template and can still be seen now. But as for the rest, you know, the torsion bar suspension, the car was only really competitive once they got rid of the the, the difficult uh, anti-dive, anti-squat, and also inboard brakes never caught on. So I'd take that away from the late Lotus 72 and, and sort of bring in the Porsche 962 and say that that was a technical pioneer in the sense of ground effect. So we'd already seen that in Formula One. But when when sort of Norbert Singer sat down to design it, skirts wouldn't work. It was sort of uh, shaping that air and uh, having it running under. Well, that's another interesting point about the 956 is that the factory ones had a single under tray, which meant it had much better airflow than the customer cars, which had twin air trays and disrupted it a little bit. So they had to have front spoilers. But anyway, with the ground effect and also the fact that you had a Le Mans winner that had a production car key and would turn, you know, it's a, a, a turnkey start. I think that's very cool as well. So I'm not trying to argue in favour of the 956 and 962 by taking anything away from the Lotus 72. But in that sort of Chapman spirit, I wonder how many of those ideas were were brilliant but weren't developed to where they could have been. I think that that's, that's, that's fair for the Lotus 72. And yes, the anti-score, anti-dive, I think we did mention, but probably not the, the Torchmar suspension. But, um, the, but the Porsche for me the, is a little bit conservative at the time because they went for um, aluminium honeycomb monocoque. It was their first sort of monocoque car. They weren't, it was pretty obvious that things were going to go carbon. You know, McLaren had already done that in F1. Ground effects were already a thing. You know, the the raw RT3 had already done, had already kind of, or, or single seaters had already done ground effects long before the, the 956 appeared. So I'd, I'm not convinced that the 956 has a real groundbreaking uh, uh, credit to it either what about um, can i play devil's advocate and say although it wasn't an automatic or a paddle shift it was the first ever used competitional road car used of a dual clutch gearbox which obviously yes it did yeah. audi group whatever it is sticks but sticks by that religiously today even yeah and of course they did a lot of a lot of work on uh electronic uh control management on turbo engines i mean let's not forget that porsche used that knowledge to go into formula one with the tag engine in uh, in the back of the McLaren and and uh, and sort everyone else out in Formula One as well, so they were obviously on the cutting edge of, of that side of things as well. Fuel formula, kind of looking ahead in that sense. So yeah, I I came into this with the expectation that the Lotus Seventy Two would probably win. Sorry, Marcus sorry. wants to say something. I just need to clarify that I was I was just speaking up on why the nine five six and nine six two were great cars, but I was unaware that I was making the case for it. Um, <laughs> um, but actually, actually, um, I would go for the Lotus seventy two. Uh, so at the time where I was talking about that, I wasn't. Uh, I was just going off the beaten track, obviously. But uh, but for me, it is the Lotus seventy two um, because. Um, I don't really care about torsion bar suspension and anti-dive and anti-squat. I just like Ronnie Peterson going sideways at Woodcut. 
Um, <laughs> um, it was, uh, you know, it was a troubled car when it was born, um, and Jochen Rint even decided not to race it in the 1970 Monaco Grand Prix uh, and race the 49 instead. But um, but it was a championship-winning car that year. Um, three years later, um, four years later, it was still winning races with with Ronnie Peterson. Uh, so longevity-wise, it was it was um, yeah, one of the most successful cars in F1 history, um, and um, it's also one of the coolest, isn't it? And um, you know, Emerson Fittipaldi became the youngest world champion in '72. Just so many evocative images from that era, um, and to me, it is just uh, a classic, a classic of Formula One, uh, probably the classic. Um, and I think it's a generational thing as well. As a kid who grew up in the 1970s, um, and my mother-in-law, who's brilliant, smokes JPS. So, um, <laughs> so you know, the later 72 has to be it for me. I, I think there's, you touched on an interesting point there: is that every single one of the finalists was a car from the 1970s or the 1980s. And while I'm sure that there's an, there, people say there's an element of well, that's because that's the age of the people involved in the discussion. Actually, that's not entirely true because. Most of the people that we've had on the, or a lot of the people that we've had on these podcasts, podcast debates, won't have been old enough, certainly to see the later '72 in action in period, nor the nor the '960. I did as a kid, but uh, it wasn't my favourite racing car. Um, so I, I think there's something about pushing the limits, uh, game changing cars. I think from from the '70s and into the '80s, you're then to a period where technology is is ahead of circuits, if you like, and and, and the quality of racing and expense. So rule makers in various championships have had to start clamping down on things, something that we moan about. Um, but these are the cars in a way that made those things happen because they were going to push the boundaries. Um, I think the car that did it to the most was the 917, which is why that would have been my choice. But it got knocked out earlier, which uh, is something I'm still trying to get over. So um, I think maybe if you on the Lotus 72, you could also say that it had to have it was during a period where every, most teams, aside from Ferrari, um, a lot of the front-running teams had uh, a Cosworth DFV and a Hewland gearbox. So to take the basic raw materials and still to change the game enough and to make a car that was so good that was still competitive when everyone else had got some of the raw materials already at their disposal um, is, is perhaps the real the real uh, sort of real score for it. And of course, Lotus struggled. Lotus struggled to replace it. The '76 kind of came and then was <laughs> sort of retired again. Uh, Lotus went into a bit. It was almost so good that Lotus went into a bit of decline. Um, Porsche, of course, left altogether for a while after the 962 as they were overtaken by Jaguar and Sauber. Um, it became a bit of a recurring theme for Lotus, didn't it? Because the uh, the the 80, which uh, came along in 1979, and Colin Chapman said would make the 79 look like a London bus, was uh, was quickly dropped, and they wheeled the 79 back out. So, so it was a bit of a Lotus habit. Uh, in the seventies, anyway, to uh, succeed a an enormously successful car with a complete lemon. Well, we we spoke to Clive Chapman about this uh, when we did a very a very cool track test with uh, some Lotuses last year, and he did say that obviously his dad Colin was always looking for the next big thing. So rather than necessarily refine and hone what he had, it was right. The next big step is this thing, and the Lotus seventy nine is perhaps the ultimate example of that because while he was looking for the next big step, Patrick Head came along and went, "I'm going to do a better version of that." And really, the FW07 Williams was what the Lotus 79 could and should have been the following year. 
Uh, and of course, Lotus never really got quite got back after that. Um, so we've got so JBL's gone for the Jake, Jake has gone for the Lotus, Marcus has gone for the Lotus, Matt's gone for the Porsche, and I can't believe I'm going to say this because I actually love sports car racing. I kind of feel like having a Formula One car winning this and one that not just set the template for Grand Prix cars, as, as Jake said earlier, but actually all single-seaters have some of the traits that the Lotus 72 set, you know, the radiators on the sides, uh, that, that that sort of chisel approach the, 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 uh, that reduced the, uh, the frontal area. Um, so I think, unless Matt is going to make one last bid for the Porsche, I think that we are going to end with all sports greatest competition car of all time is the Lotus 72 Formula One car. I can, I can come back with several arguments if we shot down immediately. Uh, I can I can have a go at that. So I think, I know it's been said that the 72 was successful till the end and part, and also that, you know, it had to be wheeled back out because of the 76. But I, I would sort of say, you know, 1975 season, no wins either in um, world championship or non non-championship races and uh um and you know by then you had sort of the the 312t and the bt44 were better cars but i think if you if we judge racing drivers by that same criteria you always want them to stop at the very top don't you and i i i wouldn't hold the the lotus 72 in in quite that esteem i know then to stretch the debate you could talk about the dower 962 even the crema k8 spiders they obviously won daytona and kept winning championships so I like to think that that car did go out of the top. I can see you shaking your head, Ken. No, I think you've done in your own argument there. Right. You have given the final nail in the coffin for the Porsche because that car did stay on in Group C forevermore and became make-weights back of the field while Jaguar, Peugeot, Mercedes were going at it. The Dower 962 can't count in this because, from that point of view because it was a massive rules cheat anyway. And I say I'm a big Porsche fan, but that was... Very cheeky. That's not what they meant when they wrote the GT rules was to get a Group C car back in the race again. The Kramer K8, I think, was was around when sports car racing was having one of its one of its dips. Uh, I don't think you would have said that was in itself a great car. So yeah, the Porsche were, were basically the 962 was defeated in 1987. Tony Southgate's XJR8 Jaguar uh, really knocked it out, um, and Porsche focused on Le Mans for the following year. Didn't do any of the championship rounds. And lost to Jaguar at Le Mans as well. So I think it was definitely done and dusted then. They got one more win after that due to a tyre thing the following year. But I think that the 962 had its decline in old age, just as uh, just as you were suggesting the Lotus 72 did. So I, uh, well, I, I, you've almost you've almost convinced me that the Lotus 72 is the right one to go for in this. I can sense uh, I'm losing this, but I think uh, both. Um... Hurley Haywood and Bob Wallach or uh, Bobby Rahal described the 962 as the best car of all time. So I'm happy to be in that company. That is good company. Now, one thing I would say about the 962, which Marcus did sort of mention earlier, was you, you know, back, back in the day, you could have aspired to be a Grand Prix driver because you got if you were rich enough, you could have gone and bought a 250F uh, uh, and you could, could go and do the Indy 500. I suppose you could argue you could still do that now. Um, but really, the top end of single seater racing is not the same. Whereas sports car racing in Le Mans, as an amateur driver that you, know, you can build up to get there. And obviously the 962 was good enough to allow the aces to, to strut their stuff, but also um, the privateers to, to, to go and race their dream as well. But I think that's more a nature of Le Mans and sports car racing. I think that's a, that'd be an unfair thing to compare 
uh, against Formula One. And of course, the low 72 did appear in Privateer hands uh, as well. So another couple of cool liveries it had uh, in, in Privateer hands. So, yeah, so well, let's just say perhaps that the Porsche 962 is the greatest customer racing car ever produced. I think that that's probably a fair shout. But the greatest competition car of all time is the Lotus 72. So I'm going to I'm going to try and finish now before Matt jumps in with another argument. No, no, uh, I would so, I would agree with it if we could nail it down to like the Lotus 72D. But but no, no, no. They're, they're, but then but, slash 962. I don't think I, that's a, probably a straw man argument. I, I think that I think that it was going to say exactly that thing, yeah. especially as you you did use the words Dower and Kramer just now <laughs> as well. So uh, I think that's uh, yeah, that's a bit harsh. So um, I'd like to I'd like to thank uh, you, the listener. Uh, do do let us know. Um, uh, yeah, we've had we've had some some nice messages about it. Um, let us know which which car you think uh, should have won. Did we miss one that we should have been talking about and should have been in this in this final? The answer, of course, is the Porsche Nine One Seven. But I'll stop going on about that. Um, and uh yeah let us know autosport at autosport.com um look out for our special 70th anniversary uh bookazine special edition of the magazine uh which will come out in the second week in november and we will have features and interviews with uh all the uh, all on all of these cars and with a whole range of other things um greatest drivers greatest races it's uh, uh it's going to be quite a big uh, quite a big undertaking for us over the next uh, next few weeks so look out for that um, so that just uh, leaves me to say thank you very much to Jake Boxleg, Marcus Simmons, and Matt Q. That is the end of the Allsport 70 mini series. Well, if you enjoyed this edition of the Autosport podcast, a reminder that our greatest competition car, the Lotus 72, is the subject of a special issue of Autosport magazine this week. As well as telling the story of the legendary F1 machine, we speak to some of the key figures, including double world champion Emerson Fittipaldi. Autosport magazine is out on the 8th of October. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.